The title of our message today is The Gospel and the Poor. I have a longer or a subtitle, The Gospel of Jesus and Taking Care of the Poor and the Needy. In our study of the book of Acts, we have seen the church in its infant state. It started with 120 people, and now it's grown to several thousands, maybe a couple of tens of thousands of people in Jerusalem, and along with that come growing pains. There is a potential difficulty in the text that we have. There have been both inner attacks and outer attacks in so far, and it's going to get more and more intense as the rest of this chapter goes along, but something happens here in our text that may surprise you, maybe not. I don't think it would ever happen today. Some people complain. <laughs> and it could be used to stifle the work, but instead they recognize the truth in the complaints. Bill Bright, who used to be the head of Campus Crusade, has since gone to be with the Lord, but used to say, in every criticism, there is a nugget of truth. So when you hear it, rather than just dismissing it, look to see if there's any truth in the criticism. In this criticism of the early church, there's some truth. Things have grown rapidly for them. There's only 12 apostles. Uh, when I tried to figure out at this point how many people there were in the church in Jerusalem, I got a lot of different numbers. 8,000 men, one said 20,000 men, one said 30,000 men. Now that doesn't include women and children. So you've got 12 men trying to handle this rapidly growing, you know, church. And you can imagine that they aren't doing things 100% correctly. In fact, the church in, Ju in Judaism in general wasn't doing things 100% correctly when it came to taking care of widows. We'll talk about that here momentarily. Now, again, here we are very early in the church. The church has grown rapidly in Jerusalem and begun to affect the smaller cities that are around Jerusalem. People are traveling now from the smaller cities to go to the church in Jerusalem. And in our text, we see very early in the DNA of the church is helping those who are in need. It's something that the church has done since its infancy. Both attempts don't do it completely correctly, but it's a good desire. It's a right desire that they have to help those who are in need. We saw in chapter 4 that they had people that sold land who were bringing the land and laying it at the feet of the apostles and everybody who watched them do that, and they would give it to the whole group so that none of them had any lack. And that is, is Acts chapter 4, uh, verses, where are we at here? Acts chapter 4, verses, verse 34. None of them had lack because people who had property sold it, but they would lay it at the feet of the apostles so that everybody around would go, good job, you guys gave, how wonderful. What did Jesus say? When you give, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. When you give, give in secret so your father who sees you in secret can reward you openly. Maybe the disciples were missing on that day. They just didn't get it. They just weren't applying what Jesus had said. They weren't perfect. They were filled with the Spirit. But we can't say that everything they did was perfect because they were filled by the Spirit. There are things that are descriptive in the Scriptures and there are things that are prescriptive. The descriptives just tell us how it happened. 
the, the descriptive. It's just descriptive. The prescriptive tells us to do things a certain way. Right now, we're in a descriptive section. They did not handle that correctly. Neither are they handling their desire to minister to widows. And widows are not being taken care of from the church or, or, or from Judaism really well either. If you go back to the law and you look at the way that they were to take care of people who were poor in the law, they had a lot of things set up for their welfare system. You remember they weren't supposed to glean the corners of their field. And if you were poor, you could go gather from the corners of their field. We see this with Naomi and Ruth. Ruth goes out to collect. This is the welfare system. They're poor. They are, they are widows. The, they, the land goes on from, from men in the Old Testament. And so the widows are left to be taken care of. And when Boaz sees Ruth in his field, he tells his guys, go drop some extra stuff in front of her. And so they go and drop some things in front of her because he's interested in her. But that was the plan. But they didn't take really good care of them because you remember that there was a woman who dropped in two pennies into the offertory. People were giving out of their resources. But this woman gave everything she had. And there shouldn't have been any widows in Jerusalem at any time that only had two cents. Two, two widows' mites. That there was enough in the Old Testament on how to take care of widows that that shouldn't have happened. And I believe that when you read that account and you hear Jesus talking about her giving out of everything she had, that Jesus is upset that they have not really been taking care of it. So it doesn't surprise us that the early church is wanting to take care of the widows, that that's their desire. Now let's consider a few things the Bible has to say about us giving to the poor. And maybe you need to know this right out front for this Bible study. I've been praying for you for the last week or so and for myself that God would open up opportunities for us to be able to give to people who are struggling, who have a need, according to what your need is. And that's going to be different depending on, on where you are. Some of you could help some out great, someone out greatly. Some of you could buy somebody a lunch that needs to have a lunch bought for them. But I'm praying that God would open up doors for you to be able to bless people. There are a lot of organizations that we can help to, to, to give to. There are organizations that minister to third world countries. And there's just something about coming alongside of ministries that minister to the most poor in the world that I like. So like Samaritan's Purse, uh, World uh, Vision, uh, Compassion International. These are three different organizations. I, do, I believe they do a great job in ministering to third world countries. And if you want to give to them, you can. In Tucson, there's the Salvation Army and there's Gospel Rescue Mission. And we've come alongside of, of Gospel Rescue Mission to help them do things. And I love that when we, we have something called Practical Christian Living Foundation which is a foundation that we have where we help ministries that have a project that need to be done and we help them get projects done. For example, we wanted to build a couple of wells in India for a couple of different villages. When we did that, we ended up, I don't remember how many we built, but it was five or six, maybe even more than that because you guys responded out of your hearts that people didn't have clean drinking water to drink and you wanted to give. And this is in the DNA of a Christian. A Christian wants to give, wants to help. In fact, in Matthew 25, when Jesus tells the parable of the sheep and the goats, and he says to the sheep, I was hungry and you gave me food. 
I was thirsty and you fed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and I was in prison and you visited me. And the sheep say, when did we see you thirsty and hungry and naked and sick and in prison? And Jesus says, when you've done it to the least of these, you've done it unto me. In our DNA as Christians, and then he says, welcome into the joy of the Lord. It looks like, is it, is it helping poor people that gets us saved? Now, there are plenty of people that teach that today. They deny the salvation of the work of Jesus on the cross, and they turn everything into a social gospel. Now, that term social gospel in the early 20th century was the social gospel movement, and it was going alongside of churches and helping them to realize that presenting the gospel and getting people saved is only part of what we do that we do reach out and help people that are in need. But that's not all we do. And there are certain churches that are becoming social gospel churches only, and they're not preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why I call this the gospel of Christ and helping the poor. Because both of them are necessary, and we're going to see that as we make our way through here. Now, a couple of verses on helping the poor. The Bible says... In Acts 20, 35, as Paul's talking to the elders of Ephesus for the very last time, he says to them, I have shown you in every way by laboring like this that you must support the weak. Paul gave them an example of supporting the weak while he was there in front of them. And remember the words of our Lord Jesus, that he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Now, I don't know if you've ever been in a great need, and somebody came and helped you in that great need. But I have. Very early on in our ministry here at Calvary Tucson, we left a business in Albuquerque. And the business had 12 employees. We were, we were taking money from them to give to the IRS. When I was there, I would get from our accountant the little paper that we had, how much we had been withholding, how much we had to send it to. It was paper clipped to an envelope. You put, the, you put a check in, you put the, the, the form in, you mailed it off to them. The accountant made it very easily. The guy that we hired to manage it, for whatever reason, didn't do it. Maybe it was me. Maybe I didn't cover it with him. I don't know. I was 25 years old. I have no idea. All I know is that ne the next thing we knew, we got something from the IRS that we owed them $17,000 that we had in, withheld from employees. Now... If you think that the IRS doesn't like it when you don't pay your taxes, collect money from other people and keep it and see how they like that. The next thing you know, we were $56,000 in debt, 26, 27 years old, 1987, all right? So you can imagine how much that was, and we didn't know what we were going to do. And the IRS was talking about throwing me in jail. They were like, I went in for an offer of compromise a couple of years later. I was almost 30. And the IRS agents say, why would, why would we do an offer of compromise? You've got your entire life ahead of you to earn money and pay us back. And they were adding interest to it and penalty continually. Until finally, one offered to do it. And my, my father-in-law, who didn't really like me all that much, <laughs> was a CPA. He was actually Lisa's stepdad. And he was a CPA, and he had some access to some money that he could borrow at a cheap rate. He did that for us. We were able to pay off that debt and to get back on the road again. And I could tell you I was so blessed to have the weight of that out from under it, to be out from under it, 
And Jesus said, it's more blessed to give than it is to receive. You are more blessed when you give than when you receive. And I know when I've received, I've been blessed. And you probably have some experience like that in your life as well. Now, James said this, pure and undefiled religion in the sight of the Father is to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep one unstained from the world. In 1 John 3, 17, John says this, but what whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him does not have the love of God that abides in him. So again, this is, this is the DNA of a Christian. Like when you have an orange tree and it produces oranges, Christians give. It's what we do. We give according to what we can give. We, we, I don't think we should give what we can't afford to give, but I think we should give, and all of us should be giving. And you might feel like, well, if I give just a little bit, it doesn't really help much. But God was able to multiply the fishes and the loaves with a little boy. So why can't God multiply what you give? And why can't you bless someone with something that's smaller, even if it's not significant? God, Jesus said this woman gave more than them all. And when you're able to give, even when you're struggling and, and, and getting to the point of getting your finances together, well, you'll be able to help people more. Now, a couple more verses. Proverbs 19, 17 says, He who has pity on the poor lends to the Lord, and the Lord will repay him. Now, I like that. There's a lot of verses like that. Give and it will be given unto you, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. If you give abundantly, you'll receive abundantly. If you give sparingly, you'll receive sparingly. And God doesn't give us those verses to appeal to our greed. <clears throat> That's what the television, television evangelists would like you to think. Give money to us and God will make you rich. No, God's simply saying, you can be generous. It's okay, be generous. God will be generous back to you if you're generous. It's okay to be generous. And I would say that even if you're struggling financially, be generous on the level you can be. I'm not telling you to go beyond the level that will hurt you financially. I'm just saying at the level you can be generous, be generous, and God will give back to you. <coughs> Excuse me. Then Proverbs 22, 9 says, He who has a generous eye will be blessed, for he gives of his bread to the poor. And, and there are many more verses that are like this, and they help us to understand, as I said earlier, in the DNA of a Christian is a desire to help those who are struggling and poor. So let's get to the problem that they had. This is Acts 6, verses 1 through 7. I'm going to start in verse 1. Now, in those days when the number of the disciples were multiplying. Now, this is the first time in the Bible, in Acts, that they're called disciples. Jesus had said at the end of Matthew, go out and make disciples of all nations. They're still in Jerusalem, but here they've made disciples. And these are not disciples of Peter or disciples of Thomas or disciples of, of uh, Matthew. These are disciples for Jesus. When we make disciples, we are not making disciples. There was a discipleship movement back in the 70s where they said that each one of us should have disciples and each one of us should be being discipled. The problem with that is that there were disciples of Robert Furrow. Had we followed that model, there would have been disciples of Robert Furrow, and those would be the most pathetic disciples ever. 
we are making disciples for Jesus. And if today you say, I want to follow Christ, you are going to be a disciple. The disciples will be multiplied, but you will be a disciple of Jesus. And isn't that a far better thing to be? A disciple of Jesus, laying down your life for him and living wholeheartedly for him. And it says that they were multiplying. So this is getting out of hand for the apostles. There's only 12 of them. Now there are probably, I'm, I'm going to take a rounded guess of all the, uh, the, the, the things I looked up, Fifteen to 20,000 men plus women and children. That's the size of the church here. It's growing rapidly. And um, it says, a complaint arose the Hebrew, um, against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. Now, I want you to notice that this is a true complaint. It says their widows were neglected in the distribution. It doesn't say that they said that their widows were neglected. The way the text reads is they were falling short. I don't think it was on purpose by the apostles. I don't think they were like, we like the Hebraic widows and not the Hellenistic widows. But what was the difference between those two? The difference was is that when Alexander the Great took over the world, he wanted to Hellenize the world. The word Hellenize is, is for Greek. He wanted to make the world Greek. And so a Hellenistic world, they spoke Greek. And that's why the, in the New Testament times, they all spoke Greek. And that's why I think God brought Jesus at just the right time. So that because there was a one world language for the first time, and that was Greek, and the gospel could be taken around the world. And there were Jews who lived the culture of Hellenism. They accepted the Greek culture. They dressed like Greeks. They talked in Greek. They read the Septuagint. The Septuagint was the Old Testament in Greek. It's interesting, a lot of the quotes that we have in the New Testament, they can tell are quoted from the Septuagint and not the Hebrew scriptures that they had available. So they spoke Greek and they wrote them. And we know that because the Septuagint dealt with certain passages in certain ways. Like if I quote a version to you, if you're familiar with versions of the Bible, you can tell what version I'm quoting. That's how we know that the, the, they were using the Greek Septuagint, which was finished 165 years before the time of Christ. And so now the, the, what is called the Hebraic were people that rejected Hellenism. It wasn't just that they were brought up in Jerusalem. I heard one person say one time, well, they were brought up in Jerusalem. Everybody else was from the dispersion and they brought Hellenism in. No, you remember that Israel before the Maccabees was taken over by the, by the Greeks and Hellenism had infiltrated Jerusalem as well. And so what happened was, is there were a group of people who said, we think that being Hellenistic, embracing the culture is sinful. And so they went back to be what was called Hebraic. They dressed like, like Hebrews dressed. They talked in, in Hebrew. They saw that it was a compromise to be Hellenistic. Maybe this led to the neglect of some of the Hellenist widows. We don't know. But that's what was happening. And so when they hear this, we, and, and, and they're not being, all the widows aren't being taken care of, and this isn't anything new in Jerusalem. In the Old Testament, there was enough information given for them to care for everyone, but they hadn't done it. And so this woman gave two cents 
and, her, and herself was a widow that was in need. Now in verse 2, it says, Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples, probably in the temple. We were told at the, la at, at the end of chapter 5 that they met in the, the temple daily and from house to house. So they got to get a large multitude together, probably somewhere in the temple, maybe Solomon's porch, maybe somewhere else. But they summons the twelve, or the multitude, of the disciples and said, it is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. It's getting out of hand for these, for these 11 guys, 12 guys, because Matthias has replaced Judas. So it's getting out of hand for these 12 guys. I remember when we started the church here back in 1985, and it was me and Doug Martin. Doug Martin ran the radio station, uh, um, uh, which was here. I, I think it was KVOI, or it was, was it KVOI? Whatever, whatever it was, when we first started here, he ran that. He also did worship for us, and we were doing everything. And it's funny, I've got some of the older bulletins that I did, and they're not very good, because... I'm just not good at that kind of stuff. But we did it all. And it got out of hand where we couldn't do it all. And we needed people to come alongside of us and help us. That's exactly where they are. It's gotten too big. These 12 people can't take care of it. And so it says, it is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Nothing wrong with serving tables. They just felt like we've got to stay in the word of God. They were the shepherds for the church in Jerusalem. And they were now having to neglect that to serve tables, and they were doing neither one of them well. And so, you know, the Bible tells us the importance of the Word of God. In Matthew 4, 4, when Jesus is tempted by Satan, Jesus says this, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. If we are going to be healthy spiritually, we are going to have to get the Word of God. John 17, 17 says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. To be sanctified is to be set apart. So we are going to be set apart by God the more we learn the truth of his word. In 1 Peter 2, 2 it says, as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby. If you're not receiving the pure milk of the word, then you're not going to be able to grow and mature as a Christian and the Bible makes it clear that God wants us to grow to the fullness of the measure of Christ, of maturity. God wants us to go from wherever we are into maturity. And in Luke eleven twenty-eight, we have a woman who says, blessed is the, the breast that nursed you and the womb that carried you. And Jesus says, more than that, blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it, which is pretty strong. You're more blessed than Mary. How blessed was Mary to be able to raise Jesus? And we are more blessed when we hear the word of God and keep it. This tells us something about churches today rejecting the teaching of the word of God. It tells us, I think, that this is a work of the enemy. That the enemy wants to get us as churches to not handle the word of God. Because the word of God will move in people's lives. And a lot of times... Uh, in churches, it becomes more self-help. And I'm not talking about anybody in general. I'm just saying that when a church leans more on self-help kind of teaching rather than the Word of God, that's a dangerous place to be. Verse 3, Therefore, brethren, 
Seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, who may be appointed over this business. So he says, choose from among you seven men. And they had to have three qualifications. They had a good reputation, because if they didn't, they'd be called cheaters again, right? If you have bad reputation, we chose that guy, and that guy's cheating and not giving the money to the widows. Full of the Holy Spirit, which gives them direction by God, and wisdom. Because there's going to be a large amount of money given, but it's also limited. And they have to figure out who they can give it to and what they've got to do. Now, later on, we get, this is in Jerusalem. Later on, the church is dispersed, and we get two letters that help us to choose deacons. One of them is in 1 Timothy. The other one is Titus. And in both of these books, we are told the qualifications of a deacon, and they are expanded a little bit from here. But they are qualifications for people to help with the physical needs. And every church is supposed to do that. We have a fund in the church that is to help people who are part of our church. We have another fund that is to help people that are outside of our church. The Bible says, do good to all men, but especially to those of the household of faith. And there's something about meeting the physical needs, the financial needs of those who are a part of our body but also helping those that are outside of the church. And we want to do both of those, but it takes wisdom to be able to do that. And you've got to have people with good reputations. If you're choosing people with bad reputations, they may steal from the fund. If you choose people with bad reputations, they're not going to be trusted. You've got to choose people filled with the Holy Spirit and people that have wisdom because the money's limited. And so you've got to make some decisions about who you can help and who you can't help and how you can best help those who are out there. So that's what they did. Now, they're doing good here. They, they choose them that we may appoint over this business. But then they say, but we ourselves, um, but we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word of God. Now they add in that they want prayer. This is important for those that minister in the word of God. We would call them elders today. An elder is supposed to be able to teach and he is supposed to be able to prayerfully care for the spiritual needs of the body. So our elders at our church care for the spiritual needs, our deacons care for the physical needs. That's the structure that we have here. We think it's very biblical. Now Colossians 3, 23 and 24 says, And whatever you do, do it heartily as unto the Lord, not to men knowing that from the Lord you will receive a reward of an inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. That whatever you do in our, in our fellowship, to do it to God. Years ago, I had the privilege of going to Cassus Adobe's church when they were still on Ina, and hear Elizabeth Elliot speak. Elizabeth Elliot had lost her husband to some, some Indians that had killed her, killed him, and then she went and ministered to those Indians and brought them to Christ. And I was so excited to go hear her, her share. One of the things that she said is that you need to be involved in your fellowship. And if you don't know where to be involved, she said, it's like a, uh, like a car. You can't steer a parked car. So if you're just frozen, I don't know where to go. I don't know what to do. She said, get involved and God will be able to direct you. I remember the very first thing that me and Lisa ever did right after we were married. 
we got married very young. I was 20 years old when we got married, and she was 19 years old when we got married. She was, she turned 20 shortly. We got married on May 22nd. She turned uh, uh, 20 on June 1st, and I turned 21 on June 30th. So we weren't that young. But we both knew we wanted to get involved in the church and begin to do the things within the church. And so she chose and felt led to help five-year-olds to go five-year-old Sunday school class. I felt led to go to junior high Sunday school class. And so I started teaching in junior high. Something I noticed right away is that the curriculum that the four-square church that we were attending wasn't very good curriculum for junior high. It was just really elementary for them. And so I went to the, the leader of the Sunday school and I said, listen, I wanna, I'd like to teach through the book of Mark. I'd like to start in Mark 1 and teach the kids all the way through the book of Mark. And he allowed me to be able to do that. And I was so blessed in being able to do that. And if you can believe what the kids said, they said they were blessed by what was done when I was there, even though there was a lot of growing that had to happen. From there, I went to be a youth pastor. They finally, they finally encouraged me to leave the, the Foursquare Church and to go to the new Calvary Chapel in Albuquerque, which was Skip Heitzig's church. And I became the first youth pastor for, for Skip Heitzig's, for Calvary Chapel of Albuquerque that was there. And then God led me to come out here and to start the church. But you could see that as I got going, God began to direct what I was going to be doing. God did the same thing with Lisa, and God will do the same thing with you. You get started. You just get started, and you do what you do wholeheartedly to the Lord. That may be a deacon. It may be a pastor. It may be an elder. It may be a Sunday school teacher. It may be security. It may be greeting at the door. It may be one of our many other ministries that we need help in, ministering to people that are coming out of the penitentiary, getting them back into society, different things like that. But it's a good opportunity for us to do that. And so verse 5 this decision pleased the multitudes. And the, and, uh, and the saying pleased the whole multitude. Now that rarely happens when you have a division. You announce you're going to do something different. It rarely pleases everybody, but this one did. So they chose, and here's the names, Stephen, who for the next chapter and a half we're going to hear from, a man full of the Holy Spirit, Philip, not Philip the Apostle, who, by the way, was a Hellenist. Uh, one of the apostles was a Hellenist. But this is another Philip, uh, Procorius. And if you're looking for men's names right now for your babies, here they are. <laughs> There's Nicanor, <laughs> Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, which is a pretty common name, Right? Now, this Nicholas is suggested to be the one that started the deeds of the Nicolaitans for the book of Revelation. We don't know that for sure. And if you're interested in that, you can go and listen to those studies in Revelation where we talk about the Nicolaitans. We talk about the possibility of it being this Nicholas. Um, this, is, this happens in the mid-30s, and Revelation is written in the mid-90s, in the first century. So there's 60 years. So we don't, and, and it's pretty weak evidence when you go, his name was Nicholas, and it's the deeds of the Nicolaitans must be the same guy. It's like hearing that a, a guy by the name of Robert got arrested, and you're like, did you hear Robert from the church got arrested? <laughs> no, there's a lot of different Roberts, right? There were a lot of different Nicholases as well. But something to notice about these names, and this is great. 
they're all Hellenistic. They're all Greek. The complaint came that you guys are caring for the Hebraic women, but not the Hellenistic women. And so they chose all Greek to take care of them. It was like a move of, of wisdom among the crowd to say, let's put good, godly men into position. Let's make them Hellenistic to care for the Hellenistic women. And they were pleased by it. And it says, who they set before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. Now, these men are called deacons. Later on, we get what a deacon is supposed to do, and it's expanded on, but they do take care of the physical needs of the body. Verse 7 gives us the conclusion. Then the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied. Oh, that every complaint would work out like that. There would be a complaint, and the church would get larger, and God's word would multiply. More people would get saved. And then it says, they multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and many of the priests were obedient to the faith. Had you ever noticed that before? Actual priests now were becoming Christians. Remember that John the Baptist's dad, Zechariah, was a priest. And that John the Baptist, had he not decided to go live in the wilderness and eat bugs, could have been a priest as well. But now we have priests who are joining the church that is in Jerusalem. Now, three things in closing. Number one, part of the fruit of being a Christian is to help the poor and needy. It's just part of the fruit. When we have a genuine relationship with God and it is healthy, part of what we do is desire to help those who are poor and needy. And I'm going to go more than just desire. We actually do that. And I'll encourage you, if you are struggling financially, still find a way to do it. Do it. I'm not asking you to do above your means. I'm not asking you to go in debt to do it, all right? Just really clear. I'm just saying, do what you can do with what you have now, because the same principles are true for you as are true for anyone else, that God's going to give back to you when you give, and that God's going to honor your generosity and bless you. Just do it at the level that you can afford to do it. And then as you can afford to do more, do more. Number two, we are all part of the body of Christ. Let's find our place in it. For those of you who are not part of what we're doing, who are not involved, then we miss you. There's a part of the body of Christ that we don't have. And we are all working, supposed to be working together. He's the head and we are the body. Number three, do everything you do heartily for Christ. And if you go back and you look at the context of that passage again, it's not just talking about what you do in the church. It's saying everything you do, do heartily to Christ. We live for him. We're never off the clock, as it were. Well, I'm, I'm not going to share with them because I'm not on the clock. No, do everything you do. Do it wholeheartedly to Christ. And there's so much encouragement that we learn here from this passage. And I hope that you are encouraged by spending time looking at these things today. Stand with me, would you, and let's pray together. Father, thank you that we can take time to take a look at this passage, the mistakes that the apostles were making, and how they got corrected, and how you moved. And thank you that we can give to those that are in need. And I pray that you would bring people into our lives. Lord, it's great that we can give to Gospel Rescue Mission and Salvation Army and, and, and uh, the... The, the national um, organizations that reach into the third world, like Samaritan's Purse and, 
and um, Compassion International and um, well, the others that I mentioned. And, and but Lord, thank you for that. But that you would bring people into our lives where we can help them out. We pray that you would give us those opportunities and we would be ready to be obedient. We thank you for this. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.